And we are live from America and just outside of the Matrix. It is time for the show that brings you the truth beyond the headlines. I'm Sky Nell Hughes filling in for my friend Lee Stranahan as he takes another day to help Enric to recover. This is the backstory. Okay, we've got a lot going on in the show. It is day two of this journey, and I promised you, if you survived day one, day two was going to be even more adventurous, filled with more stories that you need to know that you're not going to hear anywhere else, including Biden has put out his new budget, and wow, it's a doozy, says that he is going to force the top 10 billionaires alone to pay $215 billion over the next decade. Do we actually believe that's going to happen? Because those same billionaires, well, they're also um, his greatest contributors. We're also going to break down a part of that great budget he proposed, $800 billion to go to the defense. Wow, wonder where that money's going to go. We're going to also talk about those biolabs. Were they there? Were they not? Are American taxpayer dollars going to pay them? And why? The million dollar question. And granted, we have lots of millions right now in the American budget. Were they funded by the U.S.? And why are they in countries that continuously are not stable? I mean, hello, Ukraine. We're going to talk with the expert Ben Swan. Investigative journalist will join us on that one. And of course... We have to bring in an update to the Madison Cawthorn story that we first brought you yesterday, where he accused orgies and cocaine binges by D.C.'s top political class. Well, there's been some backlash, as we expected, and Cawthorn has been called to the principal's office. And many Democrats are pointing the finger, saying, ha, 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 look how horrible you Republicans are. Do they have that right? Well, we're going to bring you the update on that. And last but not least, we are going to talk about what is going to be happening tomorrow on the morning show here on Sputnik. All of this tomorrow, I want to bring in producer Rob. Rob, I know you're there. I know you're looking at today's headlines. You know, it is so hard, I'm sure, in your position. How many times do you say the words Ukraine and Hunter Biden in your sleep right now? I try not to think about it. I'm going to sleep at all because there's nothing good in that laptop. <laughs> well, the, the problem is there's actually a lot of good things in that laptop. The, the, the question is, are we ever going to find them out? Do you believe at this stage that we're ever going to know what exactly was on there? Um, well, we had uh, Chuck Grassley come out today and present that they're going to investigate the uh, Hunter Biden laptop. And he released a, uh, I believe it's a, a check that was uh, for Hunter Biden that was on nobody has seen before um so i i honestly i gave it like a maybe 25 percent shot that we'll, that we'll actually know what's really going on but i think it's just republicans just uh being show horses right now well it's interesting that you bring that up because first of all chuck grassley brings something up i think i saw um matt gates came out and he had a hard drive and said this was from how do all these politicians have particles and pieces of information that was on hunter biden's uh, laptop, and yet our own intelligence community doesn't have it. How are the politicians getting it? <laughs> Please answer this for me, Rod. I know in your magical ball you have all the answers. Honestly, I think uh, in, in my cynicism, I believe they've already known most of what's been on there, and they went along. They went along during the uh, 2020 election, and they let all these people lie. And like I said, now they're just being show horses, and they're promising things that they're not going to deliver on. I mean, we saw James Comey. Uh, they promised they were going to persecute James Comey for lying, and uh, he's, you know, I think he's still on tour, I believe. 
Mm. Well, you know, at the same time as while Republicans are focusing on Hunter Biden's laptop magically, we're still dealing with January 6th. And it's interesting, over the last 24 hours, did you notice there's just been this uptick on January 6th? And now they're missing seven hours of President Trump's phone records. Supposedly, he didn't talk to anybody. And they're asking his, 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 his staff whether or not they knew if the president had a burner phone. Is that a little odd? Do you think it's just coincidence that both of these are happening at the same time? No, I don't think it's a coincidence, Scott. Yeah, I think it's just uh, it's just the political show, the circus, as you might call it, in D.C. And they're trying, you know, now it's Clarence Thomas's wife's involved, supposedly. <laughs> so it's just it's just one big mess. It is a big mess. Well, that is Rod D. Once again, are you still happy that you did not take the job as the teleprompter runner for Joe Biden or Donald Trump in, in, on day two? Are you still sticking with me here? Yeah, no, I'd be, you know, I'd be hitting myself in the face if I was uh, in charge of teleprompter with Joe Biden. So I'd be committing self-violence. And that is too pretty of a face to hit, Rod. Thank you so much for joining us. And right now, you too can have a chance to talk to Rod and to me. I'm going to give you our phone number, 202-521-1320. 202-521-1320. Rod and I are going to continue this discussion as well as much more because that's all coming up on The Backstory. Okay, let's get this journey started today. You know, so much going on right now in the world today. But of course, nothing is more important than the things that are actually happening in Russia and Ukraine. It seems like if you are listening to this radio station, if you're listening to this show, you are trying to find out the full picture. Because if you're watching the majority of the media, you're getting one side. And I keep scratching my head because for the first time in history, you have MSNBC, CNN, everyone saying the same talking point, which I find to be interesting because you've never had them all agree. I think that's why we're in a very dangerous time. I want to hear your thoughts as we start to talk about this 202-521-1320. I want to talk about the the, the people that are going to be coming up today. I, you know, it's interesting. When you fill in for a show, you want to bring new voices and you want to bring new content, new people uh, to a show and to the audience. Well, I have some really good guests that have been my friends for a long time that I consider to be experts in the area. A lot of them were already coming on the show, so it was an easy sell. Uh, but the ones that you're going to hear from two new voices today that I think uh, you're going to be really excited um, to hear what they have to say and their take on what is going on in the world today. I mean, you cannot look at the stories when we're looking at all of the money that Biden's now wanting to give, the majority of it going to the to the Pentagon. And the money, Biden is saying it's it's a great campaign slogan, I believe. I do believe that politicians, when they go out on the campaign trail, it is a part of their top talking point to bash the rich and to bash the money that the rich is making. Okay, that's easy and convenient. Yet when you get into office, do we really think that we are going that you are going to take the money away from the same people who financed your campaign? That's not how it works. We should know that by now. And yet we continue this record. You know what? I, I asked for calls. We, we got those calls coming in. I want to go on and bring in Tarif already from New Orleans with our commentary of the day. Tarif, I've only been here two days and I feel like we're already best friends. What is your take on today, especially on this idea of in Ukraine, in what we're finding to happen in Ukraine, Russia, they're having peace talks and these peace talks are happening in Turkey and it actually seems like we're getting somewhere. Could it be because there's no way that Turkey will allow the West, Biden, Boris, any of them to actually get involved and we're actually getting somewhere? Yeah, well, first I'd like to say free Julian Assange. 
Um, I, I have two other prints I want to make also, but I actually what you I just I answer what you just asked me to the best of my ability. Um, but um, of course Erdogan is he he's you know on a fence. You know sometimes sometimes he's NATO, sometimes he's not NATO, and um, so by having the peace talks in Turkey, that's pretty good. I mean that's showing improvement, knowing that the Zelensky uh, regime is finally realizing that. Um, the the armies have been encircled in the east. That's one third of the army of sixty thousand to eighty thousand people. So the best thing to do is start um talking because if you lose all those troops, then you lose the voting block in um Ukraine. People are turning against them. Once they start realizing, was basically lying. I'm talking about they was winning and they wasn't winning. So I'm glad reality is starting to set in now. Really sit down and have a neutral discussion with them about neutrality and, and um, getting rid of the Nazis. I don't know. The, the fight might continue to go on, but it's good that they are also talking about it. Can I get to my other two parts i like to make, if it's possible? I'll, I'll give you one. How about that? This is a negotiation deal. It's sort of like we're in Vegas. I want to hear one of your opinions because I know I'm going to get the other one definitely tomorrow. Tell me, give, give me your biggest point, Tarif. Well, I was, um, a couple of days ago, I was, I'm pro, I'm pro choice, but up to a certain point, you know, I don't believe in, um, late term abortions and I don't believe in, well, they had a legislation came out of California saying something about the abortion, like, um, they added something to abortion bill in California where it's basically infanticide where they might be giving the parents 20, 28 days after a child birth to basically get rid of the child, basically. The the, the, the bill is called AB 2223. And um, there was a, um, a wording was put in it six days ago in the, like the Christian um, um, pro-life groups been writing articles on it. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, to me, that's not, because if you, if you allow that to happen, I mean, we have no civilization um, left, and that's why, you know, we can't, I mean, that's why it's so important to understand what is a woman, what is a man, what is a child, because you never know the next 10 years, 20 years, if things start going, keep on going the way it is, then, you know, we won't have no more moral civilization anymore. That's my take. Well, there are some very scary parts of that, Bill, and our crack research team took your notes. I guarantee we're going to follow up on this story. I don't know much about that information. I can definitely tell you this this is not even a pro-choice or a pro-life debate. This is is a life debate. This is a murder debate because once they're born, you cannot deny that they are a human. So to say that they're going to take away life after 28 days, up to 28 days, I want to look into that and make sure that, you know, because that bill, that just sounds crazy. But Tarif, you bring up a good point about where we're going. And sometimes, you know, right now we're in the middle of this nomination of a Supreme Court justice. And she made headlines last week when you had Congresswoman Marsha Blackburn ask her, well, what is a woman? And she could not give an answer. You know, we're in a time period, I feel like right now, where a lot of these lines are blurred. And blurred lines need to stay the the name of a song, because when you have blurred lines in society, then you don't have a right or a wrong. Then you don't have ethics. You don't have morals because nobody can say what is correct and what is not correct and how you treat one another. And that is, unfortunately, I do believe a product of this life that we've lived the last two years of people just saying, well, you do this because I told you so, even if it isn't right, even if it isn't justified. 
because I said it and I and, and the fact checkers when the fact checkers are saying things are right, but the rest of the country with common sense is looking at it and saying it's not. This is where we need to get back to this idea that there are hard truths. And even if that hard truth does not agree with you, that doesn't make it any less truthful. And that's, I think, where we're as a society is going to be right now. We're going to continue this conversation. Tarif, always thank you for your call. I'm sure we'll talk tomorrow on that issue. Thank you for bringing that up. Like I said, we're going to look into that. We're going to continue to bring that to your audience, sort of like the story that we brought you about Madison Cawthorn yesterday. Like I said, it's been interesting to watch this story continue to grow Considering Madison Cawthorn is a new new representative in North Carolina, he's come out and he has said that he has been invited to these parties in Washington, D.C., where drugs have been taken and where, where I would say, not your traditional monogamous, monogamous relationships were happening. And Republicans have come out outraged and saying, if this is true, you need to name names. And as we thought, Cawthorn himself was actually going, uh, called to the principal's office with Kevin McCarthy. And you have to wonder, what does Kevin McCarthy say? Is Kevin McCarthy going to look at him and say, okay, this is true. I want names. Or is he going to say, how dare you expose our secrets? Either way, both of those are going to come with consequences and have already caused the Democrats to say, look at you, Republicans. You're the party that's now having to deal with orgies and cocaine. I scratch your head. Now, that doesn't mean that doesn't exist on both sides. And to be honest with you, Madison Cawthorn has not said who was at these parties. So we don't know if they were, as everything else is in Washington, D.C., just, you know, when they're in front of the cameras, Republicans and Democrats don't like each other. They do everything they can to hurt each other. But when they actually get in behind closed doors, they're great friends. So we don't know who is at these parties, which brings us to this merging we've seen recently of friends. When I have Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz having to say the same talking points as Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, I have to wonder what is going on. And four weeks into this, we're finally starting to see the truth come out amongst, especially amongst conservatives and Republicans do pushbacks. Those, you know, it's funny, progressives who are anti-war have been on top of this from the very beginning, as well as conservatives who are anti-war who said we don't need the, our, our noses stuck in it. And yet, four weeks later, we still have this argument going on. But yet, today we had in Turkey what looked to be peace. This is why I want to bring in. Actually, before we go to that, let's go on and uh, let's go on and go to break because Drew Burquist is such a treat. He's a new guest, a new voice that you're going to hear here on the the uh, backstory for the first time. Let us actually head to break. Take a minute. Let me get my notes in front of me, ready to go. And uh, we're going to come back with Drew Berkowitz talking about the latest. And will do we actually have real peace starting? And is the fact, this is my great question, because there's a possible ceasefire outside of Lviv or Kiev, uh, does that mean that Putin's losing? Because that's how the American media is spinning it today. And does that really help the conversation? You are listening to The Backstory. Scott and L. Hughes filling in for my friend Lee Stranahan. This is his show, and this 
is the backstory. I want to introduce you to host of This Is My Show and uh, with Drew Berquist. Drew Berquist himself, he's a former counterterrorism officer. And if you don't follow him on Twitter, at Drew Berquist, he's been one of those guys, one of the few blue check marks that have actually been correct over the last four weeks in calling out what is going on in the Russian-Ukraine conflict. And he has not been censored, as so many else have been censored and taken off of Twitter or put into social media jail. Drew, thank you so much for joining me on this. Hey, thanks for having me, Scotty. Glad to be with you. I know. I love hearing voices from my past. Even if my past was just four weeks ago, it seems like such a long time. And we were having this conversation um, on television, Drew. Now, four weeks later, we're actually in the conflict. But it looks like we're getting what I would hope to be closer to peace, at least a ceasefire, what's happening in Turkey. What are you seeing happening in Turkey right now with these conversations? And are you optimistic this is the beginning of the end of this conflict? I don't know if optimistic is the word, um, but I think Look, I think there's definitely some positive developments that have happened, you know, today in, 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 in the meetings that took place in Istanbul and some of the stuff that's been leading up to this point. Um, obviously, what's happening on the ground is, 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 is nasty and it's, it's tricky to cut through the propaganda. And I think that's where I say I'm maybe not 100 percent optimistic that, hey, this is the end, just because there's a lot of people who have a lot of things at stake here. And it, it, it's. Uh, again, just a super complicated situation. So I think, I, I think I, I see some light at the end of the tunnel, but I'm also still super concerned about where this could go because, as, as I've said about this this conflict ever since it started, is there's way, way, way more points of failure than there are opportunities to end this and get out. Um, that's not to say that there aren't opportunities, and certainly what they're discussing in Istanbul um, are said opportunities. But I, I still see a lot of points of failure that are concerning and I think should keep people still on their toes. Do you think it matters that this is happening in Istanbul and nowhere else? Do you think that actually helps this down the path of peace or if it was being held somewhere else with someone else being the mediator, uh, maybe someone that was more uh, more of an active pusher of NATO? Do, how much does it mean, do you think, to have Istanbul involved as the one hand, holding this and brokering? I mean, I think, look, it's, it's, it's a unique place, and I think that it, it does maybe offer a little different take on it, and, and you know, you're, you're approaching it from a little bit more of a, of a middle ground, and you've got people coming to the table saying, hey, we'll, we'll step in and be potential peacekeepers with, with, with Canada and Israel and, and, um, and Turkey themselves. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting in that sense um, as, a poor, as opposed to doing it somewhere in the Eastern Bloc, but it, I don't know how much it matters. I wouldn't put a ton on, on my side of things into that. Uh, I think it matters some, but does it matter enough? I don't, I don't know if that's it. It's really going to be the substance of the conversation. It's really going to be what, you know, both the, the Kremlin and, and the folks in Ukraine can determine whether, hey, this is enough. We're going to get enough out of, out of these conversations and we're satisfied with that outcome or we're not. And, uh, you know, none of us are in the head of, of either – Zelensky, the people that are behind Zelensky, none of us are in the head of Putin and the Kremlin. So it's hard to know what hits that threshold and what really satisfies them. Um, but hopefully for the sake of the world, uh, we can find some sort of an agreement that, that does hit that threshold. Well, they're saying that, you know, Russia's announced that it's going to cut back its military operations near Kiev during these peace talks, possibly even uh, a ceasefire. Now, those obviously uh, who are, I almost would call them the neocons, those pro-war saying, look, this just shows that Russia is being completely defeated. This is a new way. Uh, this is a new way for them to pull back and to save face that they want peace. 
Is that how you see a lot of people think the fact that their city's still standing and that the death toll isn't higher amongst civilians, that that shows that Russia's weak and that Russia's, you know, that the Russians are being defeated and the Ukrainians are actually being the Russians. How accurate do you think of a picture of that is? And does that actually help the purpose if it's not accurate? And I don't think it's accurate. I, and I don't think it, it, it helps the stance that we've taken. And you, you're perfect in bringing up the neocons because those are the ones who concern me the most right now. There's a lot of people who concern me. And there's a lot of things that concern me. But the active push to try and spin the narrative here. And look, I, I worked in intelligence most of my adult life. And, and with intelligence, even though I was more on the counterterrorism side, you know, spinning narratives, spinning tales, inserting fissures and trying to get people to think this and think that and really believe it is part of what we do. So I've got experience in that. And I can tell you with this particular conflict, it is one of the most difficult things ever. And obviously I'm not in and, and utilizing classified information anymore, but it's been one of the most difficult things to cut through and actually see what is true here. But one thing that is true is the neocons here in America, the media here in America, and the elite here in America, and what they've been pushing is this narrative that doesn't help de-escalate things. You know, and there's a number of reasons that they're pushing it. You know, one is to, to spin propaganda against Putin. One is to potentially get into war, which is super lucrative, although I've never understood it in this case, where you know, war can be lucrative for these people. A war that potentially becomes World War III, that potentially becomes so much more you know, apocalyptic than that, it doesn't really matter how much money you've got in your account if you're in that kind of a conflict. But to the, to the root of your question, I think it's, it's, it's reckless to say that they've been getting their butts kicked. Oh, Rus Russians have been getting, you know, things handed to them and they're not doing as well. Has it gone perfectly to plan? Well, we don't know exactly what the plan was, so it's hard to assess that. And I think if you understand what Russia's capabilities are, certainly they could do a lot more than they're doing. So it's, again, it's hard to cut through the narrative, but I think that it's dangerous to continue to spin that rhetoric because the one, it's not a popular opinion. But the one thing that everyone in the world should want is for this not to go further. That's everyone. It doesn't matter if you think, hey, this is why Putin's doing it. This is why Zelensky's doing this. This is why the U.S. takes this approach. Table all of those for a second, and we should all be able to agree that World War Three is not something that we want. You know, and that should be if that's if that if, if I find that people that don't have ulterior motives, ulterior agendas, Drew, that's what they want. It's the ones that do. The, those are the scary folks. You know, the Washington Post, the esteemed Washington Post, the one that's supposed to be the place, the mecca of all fact checking here in America, of Western media. Uh, opinion Max Boot just put out Russia is retreating. Now give Ukraine the tools to finish the job. And I think you said it correctly, Drew, when you look at the arsenal that every country has, but you have to know the arsenal that Russia has and realize that they aren't using it. They aren't using completely what it is and for a reason. And when I look at people who say, well, it's because you know the cities aren't destroyed and you've got, you know, you're seeing these casualty numbers, they're bad, but they could be a lot worse. That means that Russia is obviously being defeated. Uh, I think that it's like you said, you're playing with fire on that. I think that you, there is a respect that, believe it or not, that Russia has. This isn't like what we've you know, America's done in the past where they've just gone in and carpet bombed and destroyed everything. There is a beautiful country in Ukraine. And a lot of Ukraine is tied to Russia. I think people don't recognize how close those bonds are. And a lot of those museums and the buildings and the government cities, 
if you are someone who loves your country, especially the bigger country, you don't want to go in and purposely destroy them if they're not necessary. You don't want to kill uh, civilians. And I do think there's been a lot of restraint used in it. And the talk and the rhetoric coming from the West saying that, well, that just shows that they're losing or they're not capable of, I think that is just meant to sit there and provoke the bear. And and luckily, it looks like the bear is a lot more patient. And I laugh at any of these folks, like a Max Boot. I go, you obviously have not been around Russians a lot. You've never worked with Russians before because they are the most patient people. There, You take the exact opposite of a Southern drama queen, and that's what you're going to get with a Russian because they are patient, they are steadfast, they stay steady, they don't show emotion, but that does not mean in any doubt that they are not thinking and they are not weak. Uh, you know, I want to bring this other issue. This is how ridiculous that we're getting on this, Drew, and this is, I find this to be crazy. In Germany, we've seen that one of the letters, we've seen cancel culture on everything in America, but in Germany, they're actually going to start canceling the letter Z. And I find that to be just unreal. They're actually going to take Z out of anything, of any of their displays possible, saying that that shows that you are pro-Russia. Uh, is this just another emotion move that they're going for the low-hanging fruit in order of actually going for substantive, substantive policy because they think this is what the people want? Yeah, I mean, well, look, I mean, cancel culture is obviously the most ridiculous Thing in the, maybe in the history of mankind, it's, it's, it's the most. Uh, nothing chips away at humanity more than it. So when, when you when you take things like this and, and, and you you nailed nailed it on the head there with 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 the emotions because all of these policies, all of these ideas stem from emotion. They don't stem from reality. The truth takes some some thicker skin for sure. Um, but the truth is what's fair. The truth is reality, and sometimes it's hard to know what that reality is, but what, you know, changing a policy saying you can't use this letter or you can't say that word. We've seen a million examples here in America, whatever the case might be. That's just not the way that you get there. All, all you do is further divide people. All you do is create more and more problems along the way. And they somehow think, and I say think, they don't actually think they're not, there's no forethought in any of these decisions, but they emotionally move to make a determination or a decision that this that this makes sense in the near term and it just doesn't and it's going to end up biting people in the long haul well and and i agree with that and it seems like there's actually it's funny here outside of the area where the conflict is ukraine and russia and the countries surrounding that are involved with it we're fighting the battle emotionally that is that is the battle that we're having to fight with it because i'm looking at it even with the talks of peace over here in the, in the U u.s the u.s markets responded very positively to it. Barrel oil price went down to $6 um, on a positive signal saying that even the markets right now want to see some sort of peace happen between Russia and Ukraine as these talks progress. But did you find yesterday, I mean, think of just how much of the media and how much of, of online as well as broadcast media was devoted to the slap at the Oscars. Does that show compared to four weeks ago when I have to be honest with you, those of us that you know had any sort of ties uh, with Russia were kind of staying home and staying undercover and keeping our windows closed. Does it show that the American people either A, have moved on and are tired of this emotional roller coaster, or B, that they've actually wised up to what is being told and say, realizing that they're not being told everything going on in the region and that they just moved on with their daily lives? I think people have moved on. I think, I, I, and I, look, Americans and, and, and most just humans across the planet, I don't mean this to any of the listeners here on this show, um, on a personal level, but the, the reality is, is so many people just do that, right? They move on, they get super emotionally invested for a little bit. And then, and then there's another shiny object and they cling on to that. And then they stick with that for a while and then they move on and you get, you get the iteration there. So 
I think a lot of people have moved on here, but I think that the thing that's important is, is, is a lot of people also in America, like our leaders are failing us here in this country. I can't speak for leaders abroad. And frankly, I, that's not my problem. I, I care about people in Ukraine. I care about people everywhere. I, I, but, but I care about our country. I care about doing things right. Our leaders are failing us. And we've got people who, who don't want them. I mean, the polls show people do not want to get into some larger scale conflict here. Um, that the fact that they're moving on and the, and the, the story de jure is Will Smith slapping Chris Rock is, is a damning thing. Um, but I, I, but I, I just, I, I think that we are so broken here, um, that it's kind of to the point where we're beyond repair. Like we, we've got people who get emotionally involved, like, yeah, let's get into world war three. We've got pe- people who are emotionally involved and believe this. We've got people who get so sucked into this Will Smith slap heard around the world story. Like, who, guys, this is not important. There are way, way more important things going on in the world. And it's not even just, you know, Russia and Ukraine, but certainly that is the biggest thing that, that threatens everyone right now. So we need to focus on it. We need to look at it in a pragmatic and realistic manner. Well, let's talk about if this does end. I've only got about a minute left with you. If this does end, does life go back to what happens? How does every single leader in a case like this have to have some sort of victory out of it? Do they have to save face in order for this to end? Or is it going to be a simple, clear cut winner, loser? Well, I hope it's not that because no one wins with that. There's, there's literally, if this were to go any further, there's only losers. And that's what everyone needs to understand. And I look, I'm a guy who fought in multiple wars. I actually kind of like them. There's, that's just the stick and twist inside of me. I don't want anything to do with this one. So everyone needs to understand that. There's, there's losers on every side. So it does come down to your first point. Can someone claim victory? And then the question is, is, is there anything that is good enough for Putin um, to claim victory? Is there anything that we can do and, and Ukraine can do and others can do to satisfy him? And that comes down to what he wants and what he doesn't want. Our people here are cheap. And they're, they're going to as long as they get their sound bite for their constituents, they're good. They can be easily manipulated. But but what you know, what hits that threshold for Vladimir Putin is, is TBD. And we'll, we'll just see, I guess. Or I look at it as the same thing he's always said. He just doesn't want missiles aimed at his border and he doesn't want uh, sympathizers killed in a certain region. Pretty much the same thing before this all started. It will be interesting to see if that's all that comes down to and they can all save face. Always great to chat with you, Drew. Thank you so much for joining me. Okay, you've heard Drew on the phone. Now it's time to talk to you. Call in 202-521-1320. All of that after the break because you're listening to The Backstory. Scotty Nell Hughes leading you on day two of this journey, filling in for my friend Lee Stranahan, who is active on Twitter. If you still want to get his words of wisdom on everything going on in the world today, make sure you tune in. Well, you just heard my friend Drew Berquist talking about these peace talks that are happening there within Ukraine, within Turkey, and whether or not they're going to get anywhere and why. People are trying to encourage it. What's their motivation? Well, I want to know with you, do you believe that Erdogan and Turkey will actually help, that we are better off? And have the U.S. 
changed their emotion? Are we no longer seeing this the shiny object being supporting the Ukrainian refugees and super, support Ukraine? Have we moved on for that? Rod, are you still there? I know you're there. I know you're talking to, to as we get callers coming in. I'm going to actually ask you to do two things. Has Americans moved past this shiny object called Ukraine? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be a pipe dream. Uh, uh, somehow they're going to sabotage the peace talks if there's any, and uh, if it goes in any positive, positive way. It just it's very in your face. You hear the Jake Sullivan's, the Anthony Blinkens. They, you know, peace is like a a, a bad word to them. But at the same time, here's my only thing, and this is why I have optimism, um, Rod, that this is going to happen, is because gas prices through the roof, there's major backlash in that you're hearing this idea of a food shortage, which always scare people. I mean, we remember what it was like to have to go and, you know, claw people for toilet paper. So there's, you know, I have to wonder if they know that they have to stop this, because if you look at the chain and how this is all going to work, uh, the chain, this is all going to hit in the fall. Well, guess what else also happens in the fall? That would be the midterms. So I have to wonder if they're thinking, since this was not a clear victory for them, that maybe they look like they're backing off. Or am I just the glass is half full while yours is the glass is half empty? Is that what we're looking at here? Yeah, I'm just a little cynical just based on, I mean, just over this weekend, just uh, Biden going and saying those reckless comments saying, you know, someone has to take Putin out, you know, he can't remain in power. And then he comes back to America and he just, he just, you know, makes it even more of a mess because he said that never happened. It, it, it's, <laughs> he doesn't even stand by his own words. So um, it, it's just my cynicism, but I hope I would, I pray and I hope that you're right, that, that, that they will see that this isn't, this is the way to go and it's just going to make everything worse for definitely the Democrats. Well, let me tell you this. If you looked at Biden's proposal, and let, let me throw out the number right now, because I'm going to get your take on it, 202-521-1320. We're going to have our conversation with you, the public, as you're the most important guest we have on the show. If you look, though, at this new budget proposal, I mean, we've seen skyrocketing budget proposals over the years. But if you look at this latest one that President Biden has put out, it is the largest ever so they've got to spend that money somewhere, $773 billion going to the Department of Defense in the 2023 budget. That is incredible. So you cannot spend that money if you don't have motivation to do it. You need conflict for it. So, of course, in this case, Rod might be right. They've got to make sure that there's some sort of fear. The big bad villain, which most often is Russia, has to be active in order for them to justify taking this money and putting it in the endless pit known as the Pentagon. Now, it is only a 2% increase. And it is factoring in the 14 billion Congress has already added uh, to relocate the Afghan refugees because we have nothing else to do with our money. We have no other reasons here in America to spend our money than to spend it on refugees and financing wars in foreign countries, or at least the fear of war in foreign countries. And that is where that money is going to. Could you imagine? What the homeless, and if you want to talk about the Department of Defense, if you told me that we were going to spend $773 billion, or at least the 2% increase 
on the homeless veterans on the streets of America today to get them the help they need so that they no longer have to sleep under the stars in the cold of winter and the heat of summer, then I could say, fine, it is justifiable. Take care of those that we sent off to those wars and all of the mental issues that that has caused. But that's not where the money is going to go for. We know this. The money is going to go right back into the beltway. It's going to go into those beautiful mansions. If you've ever flown into Reagan International Airport in Washington, D.C., and I love, I love architecture. I love, I live in the South. I love the big homes that they've had from the 1800s and going through them. I live right across the, the lake from Andrew Jackson's home of the Hermitage and all of just the detail that went into it. It's exquisite. So I, I, it's not that I'm anti-wealth. I just wanted to make sure it's not off of the taxpayers and it's not being corrupted. And it's not being used and sold to help people. In reality, it's going to hurt. And so these big homes that are on the Potomac, I mean, there is a reason why Bravo has a Real Housewives of the Potomac just like they have the Real Housewives of Orange County, of New York City, of Dallas, the big wealthy. I don't want to know that there is this much money residing in Washington, D.C. Because you are very ignorant if you think that money is legitimately from hard work. If you think that is money that has been earned from hard work and, and dedication and has nothing to do with the social scene in Washington, D.C. and the lobbyists and the bills that are being passed and the insider trading and everything that we hate about the swamp, because that's where it is. And when you look at the richest county in America, guess where it is? It is right outside of Washington, D.C. And that money is not being made because people work 14-hour days out in the heat, the ones that should be deserved, or are the ones that put their name, that are willing to actually put their name and sign up to defend this country and freedom and defend our borders and defend everything we need here at home to, to protect our families. Nope, that is not where the money is going. And so, yeah, of course. And it's hard for a politician to vote against a Department of Defense bill. They should, because, but who wants to vote against soldiers? It's the same thing as voting against, it's the same death nail as voting against teachers or voting against healthcare, emergency services. That can be death for a politician if you have an uninformed electorate. That's the last thing you would want your opponent to run against you, saying that you voted against teachers or police or the if you're on a federal level against our military. You don't support our military. That is the biggest insult that if you are a patriot that someone gives you. And yet right now we're seeing the largest amount of money and none of this money will actually go to benefit those who are willing to put their lives and risk on the line. In fact, that money is going to go to build a brand new house on the Potomac and it makes me sick. How do you feel about it? 202-521-1320. Now, I don't know. It could be a line item. I mean, it can you imagine the line items it must be right now in order to, to get through a budget that is worth $773 billion. Can you imagine what that looks like? Well, one line item that might be in there is from our guest, and we're going to get to him right after the break. Ben Swan, investigative journalist, joins us to talk about the biolabs that now we're finding out, thanks to a lot of good questioning by Senator Rand Paul, were actually financed by U.S. taxpayers. We'll be right back after the break. You're listening to The Backstory. 
We are back. You are listening to The Backstory. I'm Skydal Hughes filling in for my friend, Lee Stranahan. We're going to get to guest callers at the top of the next hour, but I want to bring in Ben Swan, a good friend of mine, investigative journalist, been talking about biolabs. And Ben Swan has been covering this story and Rand Paul and the questioning of it for a very long time. But what is interesting about it, Ben, you were right about Wuhan. Now we're finding out there are biolabs in Ukraine, and yet you have people on both sides of the aisle saying, nope, there's no biolabs, and it's just false. It's not true. And definitely Hunter Biden had nothing to do with funding that went into it. So, Ben, what is the truth? Hey, Scotty, it's great to be on with you. Yeah, the the truth is that not only is there an incredible amount of evidence that Hunter Biden was involved in it. And we're talking about emails from Hunter Biden's laptop, emails that not only show that he and his partners at Rosemont Seneca, which is the investment firm that he founded with John Kerry's son-in-law and others, um, they invested not only $500,000, but they actually went out and led the round of funding uh, for Metabiota, that's the name of the company that was doing this research in Ukraine, they did that while raising $30 million from Goldman Sachs and others. And then on top of that, Hunter Biden didn't even leave it there. He went out and, and secured contracts from the U.S. Department of Defense to the tune of $18.4 million. Again, this is all public record. All of these, all of these contracts are public record. The the larger investments are public record. The emails show that it was Hunter Biden who started all of this with his his partners. And and they were able to do this. And all of it, Scotty, happened between 2014, right after the U.S. led that coup that overthrew the government of Ukraine, and November of 2016. What what happened in November of 2016? Oh, yeah, Joe Biden was no longer vice president because there was a new incoming president. And at that point, that's when the funding stopped as a result of Hunter Biden. Wow, 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 wow. But yet, Ben, why is this just now coming out? I mean, we had a whole year of running for office. We've talked about all the other issues with Hunter Biden. What, you know, those naysayers might just say, and especially like Glenn Kessler in the Washington Post, you know, the great fact checker came out and said, nope. That's just a right-wing conspiracy. It's Russian propaganda that you had. There were the the Biden son did not finance U.S. labs in Ukraine, and the right-leaning media they've just jumped on this. How are main media establishments, if the facts are there, how are they able to cover it up and nobody hold them accountable for it? Well, because because literally, Scotty, they just say it's not true. So our 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 fact-checking that's out there now is not required to prove anything. You would think it's the opposite, right? When, when a fact-checker steps up to say, I'm checking this article, I'm checking this information, and it's untrue, what they should have to do is say, here is evidence that that is not true. The problem with fact-checking this information is that all of these documents are out there. Now, I'll confess to you, I have not read um, Glenn Kessler's response. So I haven't seen that firsthand. What I'm telling you is from the documents I have seen firsthand, there's no argument to be made here. There's no question that, that Hunter Biden was doing this. There's no question that the, the funds um, were sent from his company to Metabiota. There's no question about that. There's also no question that Metabiota was in Ukraine. There's no question that Hunter Biden, by the way, approached the board members of Burisma and asked them to invest in microbiota. 
Yeah, they, they actually did that. Oh, excuse me, Metabiota. I call it a micro. It's Metabiota. Yeah. Um, and they he asked them to invest in that. So there is a long paper trail, just as with, I'll give you another example that Glenn Kessler probably also called false, was the Hunter Biden laptop from the very beginning. You know, the, the Washington Post claimed that the New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop during the election was not true. Now, of course, what is it? Five years later, we know that not only... Is it true? Uh, but the New York Times, even just three weeks ago, admitted, yes, in fact, it is authentic and it is real. Like I said, you don't find out about this truth until years later. And once again, it's because of that time period that these lies are able to continue and get covered up more and more. And then they kind of just brush them under and say, oops, we're sorry, we're bad. But Ben, there is a bigger million dollar question. And, and we asked this question in Wuhan. Now we're finding out they're in Ukraine. Um, is there any developed country, you know, or any unstable country that doesn't have a bio lab? And why is the U.S. <laughs> funding these abroad? What is the benefit to that? What genius idea came up with this? Well, I can I can't always tell you the whys, uh, but I can tell you the okay. whys. So as a journalist, you know, a lot of times the the why, you know, it comes down to motivation. The what is right. the action, and I can tell you that they are doing for sure is the, the U.S. has been involved in placing biolabs in these different locations since 20, at least 2014. They actually began placing biolabs in Ukraine earlier than that. Back in 2005, it started under uh, Yushchenko. Uh, they began placing biolabs there in 2009 and 2010 is when the Obama administration started moving to build a level three biosecurity lab. So this idea that these are old Soviet labs, not true. Um, there's there's a lot of evidence that these things were built brand new. There were two new labs built in 2019 that were opened up in Ukraine in 2019. But why do they do it? So if we talk about the Wuhan lab, that one's easy, right? And, and the reason for that is because the research that was being done in the Wuhan lab is illegal. It cannot be done on U.S. soil. The, the U.S. Congress passed a law saying you cannot perform gain-of-function research in this country. It is illegal. You should not be tinkering with viruses. It is a crime. So the NIH did not stop funding it. What they did was they offshored it to Wuhan, and they did it through a third party, a company called EcoHealth Alliance. EcoHealth Alliance was the actual recipient of the funds from the NIH, and then they carried out gain-of-function research in Wuhan and about six other labs, by the way. Now, here's, here's a teaser for you. Tomorrow, we are releasing the second part of our report on this at Sovereign.media, S-O-V-R-E-N.media, and that is the connection between EcoHealth Alliance, the Wuhan lab, and you guessed it, Metabiota, the company that was funded by Hunter Biden in Ukraine. And so what they did was bat coronavirus research, gain-of-function research. It was all happening in Ukraine at the same time that it was happening in China. Ben, do you know how frustrating that is? I think I speak on behalf of every common American, everyday citizens right now going, first of all, what the hell are we doing this type of research anyways? And just because you're not doing it on American soil and you're taking it to another country, it might be legal in that other country, but that doesn't mean ethical. And I do believe, you know, we there was a, an argument two years ago with the pandemic going, well, you know, this is all the U.S.'s fault when Trump was president. To a certain extent, you're right. It is the United States' fault that the Wuhan that the coronavirus came out of the Wuhan lab because we're funding it. 
We were funding the evil. We were funding. We were purposely there doing it, the corruption involved. So therefore, yes, we should be held responsible as Americans. But the majority of American taxpayers had no idea this was going on. And the politicians did. So here's my question, especially with Ukraine. Do you believe outside now, Hunter, I'm sure he might have discussed it with daddy, that this is where he was finding it. But do you think that the highest of levels, the White House, whether we're talking about Trump, Obama, Bush, do you think the executive office, the Oval Office knows about these labs? And are we going to see any other countries come up? I mean, are we going to see any other bio labs that the U.S. is funding come up in some other regions? Oh, well, yes to the second part of the question, for sure. One of them is in Georgia. So you have Ukraine and Georgia are the two countries that since the early 2000s, the U.S. has really been involved in regime change. Um, and so we're, we're definitely going to see them in the, pop up in those countries because we know that those labs exist in Georgia as well. Um, in terms of at the highest levels, do they know? So I think many presidents don't know. I think a lot of these are bureaucratic or defense projects. So what, what's funded in Ukraine, what was funded in Wuhan, a lot of it was funded by the Department of Defense and the Pentagon. Um, the president doesn't necessarily know. However, Joe Biden would be the exception to that. And the reason for that is because his son, who, by the way, is a crack smoking crack addict, um, was the one who was not only setting up for these projects, but in the emails, and I would encourage people to go to Sovereign.media if you want to watch our report on it, because we break down this for you. But the, the emails show that Hunter Biden was actually pitching a quote unquote Ukrainian science project to board members at Burisma. He was specifically focused on this, this uh, idea of a bio lab and what could be done with it. And according to emails that were reviewed by uh, the Daily Mail, they found that Hunter Biden helped to secure the location of the lab only a few hundred miles from the Russian border, and that he specifically was involved in the picking of the location for that lab. The bottom line is we all know that Hunter Biden's not doing anything on his own. He, he barely has the capability to walk around and function as a, as a walking around adult. Uh, and so there's no question his father was involved, just as he was involved in the deals in China, just as he was involved in the deals with Burisma, uh, just as he went and fired the prosecutor who was going to investigate Burisma in Ukraine. And let's not forget, lastly, Scotty, that Joe Biden, as vice president, was put in charge of Ukraine after 2014, when the US ca caused regime change there, he was put in charge of Ukraine. And while he was in charge of Ukraine, his son was once again benefiting to the tunes of millions of dollars by working these deals and using his influence to get Department of Defense contracts for that biolab. Unbelievable. And yet, Ben, why is this not coming out when it's needed to come out? There's an entire year of an election season. I mean, if they're going to bring out every skeleton in the closet, wouldn't this be a good skeleton to bring out? And yet Republicans, just as much as the Democrats are covering it up, Republicans aren't paying attention. And I have to wonder, are they involved? Are they afraid they're going to look into their own closets? Why would this is such a big, easy thing to say, look, Americans, look at the corruption in the Biden family. That would have been an easy one to be that would keep people from putting them back into power, into even higher office. And yet Republicans did not say anything. Rand Paul tried. He got completely annihilated, got no support from his own party to do it. And here we sit with the Bidens back in the office. And I can only imagine, Ben, I mean, that was when Joe Biden was just 
this vice president. Can you imagine, besides the $500,000 paintings being sold, the access that all of the Biden family and all of the other corrupt, uh, corruption that happens within administration that is going on right now with Joe Biden as president. And I think that's what scares me. But when you look at this budget, and that's where I brought you in on, because this new 2023 defense budget, you said this all comes underneath the defense budget. So how is that allowed? I don't consider this to be defense if it's under the NIH. Was that a part of the reasoning behind justifying the NIH and the CDC falling underneath because they knew it was even more of a bureaucratic mess to try to figure out? Well, it was a couple of things happened with what was happening in, in Wuhan. So some of the gain-of-function research that was pitched by EcoHealth Alliance was actually pitched to the Pentagon um, to study coronaviruses in bats. At least one of their proposals, which I believe off the top of my head was anywhere from 18 to $30 million, but I believe it was closer to, to 18, which is interesting because that's the same number that wound up going to Ukraine, um, was, a, was a pitch in 2019 or, yeah, I believe it was 2019, uh, by Peter Daszak over at EcoHealth Alliance. And what he specifically asked for was the Pentagon and the DOD to fund this research into not only bat coronaviruses, but into the vaccines that could be created utilizing bat coronaviruses. It's a whole story in and of itself. But a lot of these projects for gain-of-function research actually go all the way back to the year 2002, 2003. A guy by the name of Ralph Barrick, who worked at the University of North Carolina, still does. He was heavily involved. If, if your listeners are familiar with gain-of-function research, then you've heard the name Ralph. Ben, can you pause with me once and can you hold over for a quick break, a one-minute break, because I want to get to this, because this is just a preview to your thing tomorrow in Sovereign. We'll get you real quick on the, on the other end. Can I hold you over? Yep, sounds good. Thank you. When we come back on the backstory, we are going to have Ben Swan finish this because you want to find out exactly where this is coming from and uh, if there's anything you can do to prevent it. You're listening to The Backstory. live from America, just outside the matrix. It is time for the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Sky Nell Hughes, filling in for my friend Lee Stranahan as he continues his recovery. And this is the backstory. Well, you were with us this first past hour, and we're going to continue the conversation about the Department of Defense and Joe Biden. He's continued. I want to bring in Rod real quick. Rod? We got callers 202-521-1320. Do people really care? As you're talking to our callers, as they're calling in, are they actually, do they think they realize all that's in this defense budget of $800 billion? No, I don't even think, I don't even think our Congress people know what's in it. Uh, they just sign off on it and say, let's just, let's do it. Well, hopefully they will start listening to the show. It's broadcast in Washington, D.C., because um, then they can get some great information. The phone number is 202-521-1320. And this is the backstory. 
Okay, I held over my friend Ben Swan, investigative journalist. We've been talking about this budget that $800 billion and in it is included these bio labs that we've already suffered a global pandemic from the U.S. taxpayer funded lab in Wuhan, China. The loophole they found to fund it. Now we have the information that they also existed in Ukraine. And Hunter Biden magically had his fingers in it despite the fact checkers at the Washington Post saying that isn't true. But I held Ben Swan over from the last hour because I wanted him to finish this because tomorrow they're going to announce part two. And this is where it's interesting of what is going on and where this, uh, how he raised millions for the Ukrainian biolabs and he secured these U.S. military contracts when his father was vice president. Now we're going to find out exactly what he, what he actually secured while his father was president. Ben, thanks for coming back to me. First of all, where are people going to get this second part to this series that you have. Sovereign is a really good media platform that uh, that you've introduced me to. Absolutely. So if you go to Sovereign, S-O-V-R-E-N dot media, we have the first part of it already up so people can get caught up on all the details of it. And again, the, this idea that uh, Hunter Biden was not involved is just, it's just flat out a lie. Right? The idea that it did not happen is insane. However, um, the other part of the story is the connection between the folks at this, uh, you know, Ukrainian biolab and Peter Daszak, EcoHealth Alliance, and of course, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, who work together on projects, who publish papers together about studying the effects of bat coronaviruses. If, if I told you this four years ago, Right, nobody would even be able to follow me. You would say this is nonsense. What are you even talking about? Back coronaviruses and your study. Well, like we wouldn't care. But all of a sudden, now because of what we've been through in the last two years, Scotty, we then turn around and say, "Oh, well, actually, what you're saying makes a whole lot of sense." Because now I know that there were these labs that were studying back coronaviruses. Gain of function research means trying to make a coronavirus more lethal to increase the lethality of it. And now we and now we see what it is. Well, and here's what gets me about this, Ben. If I was a leader of a country, why would I let another country come in and do research in my country with my people? What kind of leader is that, that this other country found to be too dangerous and, too, and, and illegal in their country? I'm going to let them come and do it in my country. What does that say about the leadership of that country and how much they actually respect their own people? Well, I, I think it says a lot. First of all, a country that respects its own people is not a country that has a government installed by a foreign power, which is exactly what happened in Ukraine. Keep in mind that when these biolabs first came, and a lot of folks will not know this, okay? So we have a secondary report we've done actually um, two weeks ago, and it's called The Truth About Ukraine's Biolabs. And you can also find that at Sovereign.media. And what's really interesting about that report um, is that we found a, a report from a Ukrainian reporter from two years ago, who was who was doing a report on the biolabs all across the country, 15 different biolabs that she talked about, and the effects that they had had on the population, right? Obviously, this is two years ago, so it has nothing to do with the war that's going on right now. And what she talked about, this Ukrainian reporter talks about, is the fact that under, um, you know, Yushchenko, the, who was the Western-supported uh, candidate, ran against uh, Yukashenko, which their names are almost identical, ran against Yukashenko and then wound up uh, winning after he was poisoned. He winds up winning the, the presidency of the country, is a terrible president, and then the next election, uh, Yukashenko takes over. 
And when that happened, excuse me, Yanukovych takes over. I used the wrong name. Yanukovych took over. When Yanukovych took over, he's the one that was overthrown in 2014 and was viewed as being pro, more pro-Russian than EU, when in fact he was actually refusing to work with the IMF and the EU and trying to broker a, a better deal from Russia. When, when uh, he took over, Yanukovych did, he began a process of reviewing these biolabs that were spread out across Ukraine because they had been installed under something called the Dunn Act here in the United States, uh, a U.S. senator who pushed for a bill that would allow us to build biolabs across Ukraine in order to study old Soviet labs. And so he began a, a process of reviewing these labs. And what they found, Scotty, were, was an incredible litany of failures on the parts of these labs that were allowing uh, viruses to leak out, um, where the populations around these labs were getting sick. And he had actually threatened to shut down all the US labs in the country. And this reporter indicates in her report that there is at least a belief in Ukraine, because I had never heard this, but a belief in Ukraine that it was Yanukovych's uh, resistance to those US labs that was part of the reason for the coup that ultimately led to his overthrow. Ben, this is so intricate. This is exactly how they wanted it to be. They wanted it to be so complicated, the average person would not pay attention. I feel like we need a huge wall and you can make out the diagram. And then even then you'd still be confused of it. I know people can go find you. Go right now to Sovereign.com. I can't wait to watch tomorrow's latest release of your research. And uh, keep on keep on doing the hard work because we know the journalists, the majority of them here in the West, are not doing it. And so I'm glad you're doing their job. I just wish you could get their paycheck because you deserve it. That would be nice. That would be nice. Sovereign.media. Thank you. Sovereign.media. Thanks, Ben, for joining us. That is amazing. If all of those details, Ben Swan has been following this from day one. So it's not like he just picked it up, but like a lot of these journalists went and just Googled what Ukraine is and, and how, what they could write about. Ben's been covering this region for multiple years, knows it. The one thing that has just surprised all of us is just how much these bio labs, and if you think, I will disagree with Ben on one point, I probably should have kept him on this, that this conflict in Ukraine has nothing to do in the West's involvement with these bio labs, I disagree. I absolutely believe it has a part of it. There's no doubt that they do not want the corruption to be exposed to how much the U.S. has been involved, not only in the coup in 2014 and every element of the Ukrainian government since then, but they definitely, considering we just came out of the pandemic caused by one of these viruses that were developed in a U.S. taxpayer-funded lab, they don't want that to be exposed is happening possibly in Ukraine that we're doing the same research. And once again, how many other countries around the world do these lab exist? I want you to call us, please. I want to hear your point. 202-521-1320. We've got Ben from Long Beach, another Ben. Call us. What do you think about this? And how much is Hunter Biden's laptop? Do you think it has on there the information that we are seeking and would actually give us a real insight into what's going on with the Biden family and these biolabs over the past decade? Well, uh, first of all, I have a, a statement about it, and then I would uh, love to ask you a question. This is my—I'm a first-time caller, but you have truly opened my eyes. Uh, my statement about the uh, Hunter Biden is that Trump did try to bring it up in the uh, presidential debates, but it was poo-pooed by Joe Biden and the— uh, People running the debate uh, never, uh, you know, did any type of a uh, follow-up. So that's my statement regarding that. But my question that I would like to ask you, and I listen to you all every day now, 
Um, but my question is, how do you deal with the fact when true-blooded Americans call you all un-American when you tell the truth about what's going on in this country, what's going on in the world? And I'll hang up and get your answer off the air, but I just love listening to you and keep up the good work. Ben, we appreciate We love new listeners. And that has been one of, I want to say, the, the lemonade of this whole limit situation is that I do believe people are having to work hard. And these are the people that want to be informed. And so they are looking for those media that will show them the same, uh, the full picture of what is going on, because you're not getting that. When, when people are just repeating the same talking points on the mainstream media, it doesn't take much common sense to realize that you might not be getting the full picture. And I appreciate that. And I agree with you when it comes to this laptop and then the, the cover-up that we've seen for it, now that we know that's the truth, and yet it's still not really being discussed on many of the major news networks. That's why it's important to keep this spotlight on it, because I think that laptop uh, shows a lot of what's going on. Let's remember, underneath the Trump administration, from Michael Flynn to George Papadopoulos, all sorts of individuals' lives were ruined. Their, their businesses ruined. Their family lives ruined. All of their focus was actually put on task because of very small rumors. But it turns out the real corruption that we're seeing right now in this administration is barely even getting a headline. In fact, if it gets a headline, it's trying to discredit it so that people don't get involved with it. As for being called, uh, being called that we're not American, we're not patriots, I have to tell you, this is probably, if there was any ounce of truth to it, I might lose, lose sleep. But it's because I believe I am a patriot, because I do love America. I do love good people in every country. But it's mainly because I love this country is the reason why I know and I am fighting the way I am, because I'm fighting for a country, the same fight. It wasn't easy when the United States was founded. Let's remind the world that it was those people that were here in the U.S., they were here seeking freedom. And it's that freedom is the reason that continues to make me want to fight. So you can call me all the names you want, but what they're searching for is they want people to be censored. They want those freedoms to go away. I'm fighting for everybody. Even if I don't agree with you, I do believe that you matter. Your opinion matters. And I do believe you have a right to express your opinion, your voice. So to call me the unpatriotic one, I don't lose sleep over because it's completely false. And it doesn't, and for someone who has looked at war and what war is and the havoc that war causes. And I've seen what it looks like. And I, and I just tell the story often. When I went to Vietnam and I was covering President Trump's trip there, and I saw and I talked to the Vietnamese people who are wonderful, just delightful people. They were very full, almost like Southern hospitality. But they truly view the Vietnam War and they are taught and their generations are taught as the war of American aggression. Well, it wasn't about the Vietnam War. It, it, uh, freeing communism, uh, pushing back on communism. To them, it was called, it's been taught, the war of American aggression. Then I walk over to Washington, D.C., and I run my fingers over the limestone of the Vietnam Memorial, and I know that these families' lives were changed forever. Some of those men and women enlisted, some of them were forced to join. And I run my fingers over and I realize that those folks right there did not give their lives up to be aggressive. They gave their lives up because they thought they were that they were fighting communism. They were told a lie about why they were going over there. And they were told a lie by their government. And that's 
why I'm a patriot, because I want to hold our government accountable. I want to make sure that lie is not told again so that my children and their friends and my neighbors are not sent over to fight another war in another country. And they are lied to by their own government, a government that I do believe was established to be for the people and by the people. And it is my job as a patriot to make sure that we remind the government that they are there because I put them there, not because they are there because they put me here. Now you got me a little passionate little thing because it is one of my biggest insults. I look at people who really want to defend this country, that want to defend the Constitution, that don't just see it as just words on a piece of parchment paper that I want to protect it. That's what patriotism is, is protecting and that doesn't mean that I need to go and be assaulting other countries. That means that I actually need to take care of my country first. And this is a country worth taking care of because I do believe she is a beautiful country and has a lot to offer. She's a diverse country and that diversity should be celebrated at the same time. That diversity actually brings us all together as a one country, one nation under God. In fact, that's why I want to bring in our next guest after the break. Hold on. Um, we're going to talk to Steve Gill because he's going to go into President Biden. And it's interesting. Government believes that the way that you preserve freedom, the way that you preserve democracy is by throwing more money at it. Well, more money, more problems is as the old adage goes. So join us after the break. Steve Gill will be with us and you are listening to The Backstory. back. I'm Scotty Nell Hughes filling in for my friend, at least friend, and you are listening to The Backstory. Talking about The Backstory, did you realize the White House Office of Management and Budget advisors estimated that 400 billionaire families, they just paid an average federal tax rate of over 8% of their incomes between 2010-2018. Now, that was lower than what the average American did. But then, you look at what's going in now, and you, the President Biden has actually done his newest rollout for his tax plan. And he believes that he is going to force the top 10 billionaires alone to pay $215 billion over the next decade. <laughs> okay. If you believe that, please raise your hand and look like the fool you do, especially if you're in a crowded room. If we think the same people, who helped get politicians elected are actually going to pay more money, then you are foolish. And I will have no problem calling you out for that. But one man who I think is going to agree with me and who I blame completely for the reason why I'm on air today, Steve Gill, former official of the U.S. Trade Association, also under the Clinton-Bush era, got to be a little bit of both. And most importantly, the man who 20 years ago introduced me to the world of talk radio. Steve Gill, thanks for joining me. Hey, it's all my fault, both uh, the sufferings you have had and all your listeners over the years have had. It's all my fault. It all comes back to me. Please send your hate mail to at Steve at Gill Show Report. Um, I, I have no doubt that you'll get some here or there. But Steve, you've covered the budget. You know the federal budget. You know state budgets. At this point, when you are looking at the fact that Biden thinks that he's going to get his top buddies to pay 
this large of amount, $215 billion over the next decade. Do you think that it, that could actually happen? Well, and let's, and let's pair that back to each year. You know, it's $215 billion over 10 years. That's $25 billion a year. That that doesn't even cover what we left behind in Afghanistan. So this does not solve our budget issues. It does not solve our spending issues. We've got taxpayers sending in more than enough to fund our government. We just can't keep pace with the spending of our government. No matter how much we send, they will spend more. And keep in mind that it's not just these targeted rich that they're saying are not paying their fair share, although the top 1% is paying a much higher share than their percentage of, uh, of the population indicates. Half of this country, half, pays zero. The top half of earners in this country, and that starts at about 40000 a year, so we're not talking about the rich. The top half of income earners in this country pay virtually 100% of the federal income tax. And a lot of those folks in the bottom half not only don't pay, they collect. So we've got a situation where half the folks are riding in the wagon while complaining about how those of us who are pulling the wagon are doing it. We're not pulling it fast enough. We're not pulling it smoothly enough. And yet they contribute absolutely zero to the, uh, to the federal income tax, which is why you've got so many people who don't care about the waste, the fraud, the abuse, because it's not their money. Well, and even those that are supposedly writing the checks, are they really writing the checks, Steve, or are they just passing this along to their employees? Or are they taking away benefits from their employees? Are they passing it on to the consumer? Do they actually, have you ever known, short of the court order forcing them to, have you ever known any of these billionaires to sell one of their Maseratis in order to pay their tax bill for the year? No, but you've got, again, as, as you point out, the, the idea that we're going to raise taxes on employers, we're going to raise taxes on businesses, all they do is pass those those higher costs on to consumers. Companies and corporations don't pay taxes. They collect taxes from their employees, from from uh, those who uh, are customers. So that's, that's why we're seeing the inflation run amok, and it's going to continue in. I guess the good news from a political standpoint, if you're if you're a Republican, if you're wanting to see a change in the uh, AOC woke crowd that is running us into the into the ground, the inflationary numbers we're seeing now are essentially baked in. They're not going to go away between now and November. Even if gas prices drop from four thirty nine, five thirty nine, back to three fifty, which will seem lower, it's still not going to be as low as it was, and it's not going to change the higher cost of what we're paying at the grocery store and everywhere else. You know, for example, with this oil crisis, and it's completely created by the Biden administration, they forget that oil is not just used to put gasoline in our cars. It's also used to manufacture products. It's also used to manufacture fertilizer, which is one of the reasons we produce higher yields from our farms than all over the world. When you add that cost of, of, of oil into fertilizer price, into uh, and again, we don't have uh, inter, you know, the energy-efficient uh, electric vehicle trucks and uh, diesel trucks to move food to the grocery stores. We don't have electric tractors. We don't have solar-powered tractors. So all the farming that produces the food is going to cost us a lot more. And if people are disturbed by gas prices, which they should be, wait till they see what's going to happen to grocery prices over the next three months. And that's the problem right now. And that's the cost. And by the time it's already passed, it's already too late. Steve, how can President Biden talk about sleeping at night? How can he pass along and say that he is being fiscally responsible? This is a fiscal responsibility plan knowing that it's 32% more than just four years ago. 
And he says it cuts the deficit in half than it was last year. But are they able to get away with this because the year 2021 was being operated as a pandemic budget where stimulus plans were more frequent than the tooth fairy? I don't know how President Biden can say anything that anybody takes credible at this point when it's it's the gap a moment presidency. Uh, and, the, and the danger is that in the international arena, the things that he is screwing up every time he speaks are, are making it more dangerous in an already dangerous world. Uh, we've got, you know, again, the, the, the pushback, the pullback. Every time he says something, the White House has to come out a few minutes later and say, well, what he said isn't true or what he says contradicts what he was supposed to say. I think we've reached the point, unfortunately, Scotty, that we can't call these gaps anymore. I think it's a gap when he says something that doesn't have to be corrected, because that's the only time it seems that he says something that uh, that seems to stick. Uh, And his economic viewpoints are are literally as as mind boggling and as bizarre as his foreign policy and everything else that he's done. He He is destroying America. And at this point, you almost have to ask yourself, is it intentional? Because you cannot continually do the things that are so um, incomprehensible, so erratic, so um, it, 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 unable to even justify under any economic terms. It's like he constantly denies uh, the, the reality of gravity in order to promote his his reckless agenda. There is no reality to it. There's no uh, substance to it. And, and we're all going to pay a price, not just for the next you know few months until the midterm elections, but he's still in office for another two years. And the damage he's doing to our economy is going to last for for a decade and perhaps longer. Well, and he's doing, especially in this budget, I look at it and I'm seeing things that he said on the campaign trail. And I'm all for politicians when they get elected fulfilling their promises. But in this budget, he's saying that he's going to pump about $32 billion into crime fighting. Now, I find that to be interesting considering the reversal from the defund the police. Now, he says he's putting $32 billion in. But it's actually his idea of crime fighting that he's going to throw this many billions towards is community violence intervention. So it's not actually going to be fighting crime. It's not actually going to be putting uh, more forces on the street or, or, or better arming them, better training them. Nope. It's going to be community violence intervention. Uh, what does that mean? And why do we continue to allow this to happen? Why, you know, once again, he was elected, 80 million people put him in office. And yet when he can get away with these sort of just, you know, I call them like the stereotypical uh, talking points, do people buy it? Or is it more important to them when they go, well, I did just pay $4 for gas. Do they not realize where that money is going? Yeah, I think that people are not buying it. I think they're starting to figure it out, which is one of the reasons that you're seeing in the polling. The, uh, you know, his numbers are, are down and, and going lower. What what I think is is really even more disturbing is that that there's not this education going on of how the economy actually works, of how things are paid for, of how the economy grows, of how investment is needed to to create jobs. It's all this kind of, you know, we don't need farmers because there's plenty of food at Publix and Kroger. I mean, it's it's what we're seeing from the left-wing woke crowd that that truly doesn't understand basic economics. And and that's what's driving this administration. What is scary, and I'm sure the Democrats are not going to take my advice, but what is scary for the Democratic Party is that they may lose 30, 40, 50 seats or more in the U.S. House. They may lose three or four Senate seats and not only just put, put the Republicans back in power, but their their party, as it will shrink in numbers, will become more radical, more leftist. The AOCs, the, the squad will have even more power in a shrunken party. And, and it, 
I like the old adage, you know, better to serve in hell than to, or serve in heaven, uh, or serve, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. I think AOC and the rest of the crowd would rather, you know, lead a diminished, almost non-existent political party rather than, than follow a course that keeps them in the, uh, in the majority or even in a close minority, uh, but not following their radical ideas, because they are certainly serving them up. And that's the direction the Democratic Party is heading. And if they follow that left-wing group into a small minority in the Congress and the Senate and in governor's offices and state legislators around the country, they're going to have less power. They're going to be more vocal. They're going to be more radical. But they are literally on the verge of destroying the Democratic Party because they're driving out any moderate, any common sense. Look at Tulsi Gabbard. I mean, she's not from you know a red state. She's from Hawaii. She's a relatively moderate to progressive Democrat. And yet she seems like a right wing wacko compared to the rest of the Democrats. And they've driven her out of their party. Well, I find it funny. And if, I find it funny. I, I don't find it um to be too surprising. You know, I'm reading right now this government executive, one of the top uh, journalistic uh, papers for those in government. And it says Biden wants to give nearly every agency a big budget boost. How much would your agency get? Now, I don't care about Republican or Democrat. I think there's one thing that every American can agree on, that the last thing that we need is more government, bigger government. We don't need bigger bureaucracies. If you are any sort of a common sense person who operates your house and you have to look at your own budgets, you realize the more intricate you make it, the harder it works. And yet you're actually seeing we're going to see this growth of bureaucracy. And we have found, even though Trump tried, I think that was one of his downfalls, once you grow something, it is really hard to shrink it. And you know what government officials don't like? Losing their jobs or taking a pay increase or pay decrease, which they rarely do. Whenever you see any sort of budget cuts or you see any sort of uh, toning down of the money given to them, it's always what affects you and I. It never is actually what affects the, bureau, the, the politicians in the office or the head honchos or the people inside. No, it's you and I that would actually use it, even though it's our money that is paying their paychecks. But, Steve, you mentioned the Republicans. And the Republicans actually get known for being the big spender. So in this last question, I want to give you this last minute that I have. If Republicans are get back are allowed to get back in power, they hold the reputation for being the big government spenders. So do they actually spend more than the Democrats or do they just have a better or do they just do a worse job of covering their spending than the Democrats do and are able to hold on to that label? Two things. I think they do a worse job of explaining what their spending is going for. You know, spending a dollar that creates jobs and and creates economic prosperity and grows an economy is different than one that is just you know handed to people and you get nothing in return, which is how the Democrats tend to tend to spend the money. It doesn't actually grow anything. It just rewards people for staying home, like we've seen during COVID. I think the other thing is that both parties are wrapped in a system that if you if you cut the increase in spending, you get abused in the next election for having quote cut spending. It's like if, if your kids or mine come and say, hey. Dad, I, I just took a dollar increase in my allowance, and we say, no, I'm only going to give you 50 cents, and they go run crying to mom, claiming, Dad just cut my allowance by 50 cents. It's like, no, it's, it's a 50-cent increase over what you were getting, but in Washington, if they ask for a dollar and get half of it, that's a 50-cent spending cut. They run ads, they run attack ads in campaigns, and that's what fuels this continued growth in spending, is it always grows on what they spent last year, not uh, not what they should be spending. It always grows 
based on what they're asking for rather than what they need, which is why they always spend more than we can send. Well, we will see, Steve, if they continue to have this battle. Where can people follow you? Is Twitter the best way to get your commentary on today's events at Gill Report, I assume? The Gill Report or uh, on Facebook at The Gill Report. And uh, find me there. And if you agree, great. If you disagree, that's great, too. Just let me hear from you. That's all that we like. Steve, thanks for chatting with us on this and continuing to do the good work here in this country. And we'll be back with your calls, 202-521-1320. We've kind of not been able to do them because we've had such a phenomenal panel of guests. But you, the caller, our best guest, 202-521-1320. Your calls next. You are listening to The Backstory. back. I'm Scotty Nell Hughes. You're listening to The Backstory. Final half hour of today's show. This journey continues. And what is interesting in everything, whether we're talking about international policy and domestic policy, everything is flowing together. Everything comes across at a point. Everything is related including the slap from two days ago, as we pointed out, the fact that there was so much obsession over that conversation yesterday. Guess what? That shows that the American people are no longer as obsessed, I do believe, with this of the events going on in Russia, Ukraine. I do believe that goes to the benefit of peace. But who knows? The tides can turn on us. That's what I want to hear from you. 202 521-1320. That is our call in number. Ingrid will be calling back in. I apologize. You were on hold for so long. I just wanted to make sure that we were able to share so much information today as unfortunately, you can't get it anywhere else. You can't go and turn on the television. I can guarantee some of the things you have, 99% of what you've heard on this show, in fact, probably a lot of the information that you've heard on this network over the past few days, you're not hearing anywhere else. It doesn't make it wrong. It actually makes it truthful and it makes it up to you to research. And that's what I love about callers is because if they're willing to tune in, especially if they're willing to call in, that means that they're paying attention, that they want to make sure that they know everything going on. And that's why it's important, 202-521-1320. One of the Best things, and, and and one of the things that I do want to talk to, and we're going to get to Ingrid here in a second, is one story we covered yesterday, people are going to continue to talk about. It's getting more and more, and we have an update on the Madison Cawthorn story and what happened in the principal's office. But first, I promised you, Ingrid, thanks for holding on. Thanks for calling back in today. What are your feelings? We've gone everywhere from on this roller coaster, from a bio labs to Hunter Biden's laptop to peace possibly in Russia and Ukraine because of Turkey. Where are you falling today? Hello? Am I on? Yes. Yes, you are, Ingrid. Yeah, well, actually, I wanted to thank you for something personally, but uh, first, I really want to disagree with your, your first guest today. Was it uh, Bill Berkowitz? Drew, yes. Drew Berkowitz, yes. Where he said... Um, 
he wants everybody to be satisfied and he's looking for a, a quick ceasefire. I don't think everybody's going to be satisfied, nor do I think they should be. I think the way things are going, we're building towards an enormous war crimes tribunal that's going to hold a lot of these um, banderista Nazis accountable. And I, I don't think there's any way that, well, there may be a way, but I don't think that they're going to allow this corrupt government to remain in place. So I don't think there's going to be like mutually agreeable terms. I think there's going, there's going to be terms almost maybe as bad as for Germany after the second world war. But, uh, what I want well, to let me ask you a question. On, let me ask you real quick on that, Ingrid. Here's the thing. Germany in the second world war, majority of the overworld overwhelming in the world, including the U S believe that knew that Germany was doing wrong, that Germany was in the wrong. You still have, especially considering the West, you do have in the NATO and you have West, considering that Russia is wrong. So if Russia does ultimately prevail and get their wishes, which I believe they will because they are the stronger, stronger being in all of this, do you really think that the West, who would be mainly in charge of having these war tribunals in the UN, will hold Ukraine accountable for the war crimes that we're finding out is going on within their country? Do you believe, actually believe that the UN, because uh, what that does, is it shows that the United States and Britain and the rest of Europe were in the wrong. Do you really have that much confidence that in this case, justice will be served? Well, first, I don't see any reason to assume that the tribunal will happen in the UN. And I think that already the, that now that people are getting access, there's a, an Italian journalist, Giorgio Bianchi, who has come out now from Mariupol, ha having been there with scathing uh, uh, condemnation of the Ukrainian government. There's a German, very anti-Russian German journalist who has already gone on record saying, yes, the Ukrainians were committing war crimes. So I think that popular opinion will could shift very, very dramatically when actual evidence comes out. Well, Ingrid, the truth hopefully always prevail. But as we're finding, even with the Biden laptop or we're finding out with the Wuhan labs and, and the U.S. taxpayer funded, sometimes it takes years and the damage is already done. But the, the truth we hope will prevail in this case and the, and the things will come out. But let me just tell you, the lies have done a lot of damage. Not only, obviously, with a conflict, they've inspired a conflict to happen in, in Russia and Ukraine and Poland and all of the surrounding issues. But here in the United States, they've taken a major toll on multiple families. The whole Russian collusion under the Trump administration took a major toll. So and, and there's yet to be any penance for that. So I this is I guess I maybe I'm channeling Rod at this point. I, my glass is half empty on this one that I don't believe that we'll ever have justice for it because it's not only here. Here's the scary part. Ingrid. It's not just Russia fighting Ukraine or for, for their reasoning. Minded. It's Russia fighting the globalist agenda. 
It's Russia fighting to make sure that whatever is trying to make it to destroy uh, this this concept of of what is important to people and the family security and making countries be individuals. It's the globalists who they're fighting, and they're doing a lot better job than the U.S. politicians because in a lot of ways, the U.S. politicians are aiding and abetting. But I digress. I want to get to your actual second point in all of this, Inger, before I let you go. What, what else do you see in this world right now that makes you feel that that there is going to be justice? Okay, you're actually, uh, with your uh, feeling, what you said previously to the other people about attention having shifted to the Oscars, you're in a way more optimistic than I am that this will this will just go away. But my second point wasn't about was about you and last week you said something on fault lines about keeping a list of people that you would like to apologize to you when this is over who have been so wrong and who cost you your job for one thing. So I thought, how great. I mean, sometimes I make a mental note that I started keeping an actual list and, you know, revenge is a good motivator. And my list is of academics who have come out very forcefully with what I think is completely incorrect. And, and so far I have three. First is Peter Kuznick, who was actually a guest on Sputnik, talking, uh, talking down, poo-pooing that there were any Nazis, um, de de debating whether the Russia had any advantage. He's number one. Number two, and he's at American University, a professor. Number two is this Anthony Arend from Georgetown, who was on C-SPAN, more or less doing the same thing. And third is another woman, she's also from AU, Cynthia Miller-Idris, who wrote a long article saying uh, it's all Putin's fault uh, to, to pretend that Nazis had any kind of influence in, in the thing. So I'm, I'm keeping a list because these academics are influential people, and they also are, are poisoning the minds of young people. So there you go. I thank you for that motivation for revenge. <laughs> well, my mother's always said that success is the best revenge. And in this case, I still firmly preach that to my own family and sometimes I have to preach it to myself while looking in the mirror. But in this case, I do believe we have to hold those accountable. For me, my job is holding people like Jennifer Rubin accountable for her anti-Russian uh, rhetoric that she's done for years. I often joke you can always tell the people that were dumped by a Russian in high school uh, because they're still very bitter about it. They were they were obviously heartbroken because it's such a deep hatred for all things that have to do with it. They don't matter if they're spewing the truth, if they're telling the truth or not, and most often they are not. They just want to demonize at the same time as on one hand, they're talking about hate and they're encouraging violence and they're encouraging they're they're using false flags and false things to to demonize an entire group of people but on the other hand they want love and fairness and equality it's just it, it, it they spend so much that you get nauseated when you talk to some of them so i appreciate you keeping your list and i'm sure that list is going to continue to grow interesting about peter kuznick he is someone that i've talked to for a long time has done research then you know what i'm going to take your suggestion we're gonna you know rod i know you're out there listening let's see if we can get peter on the show here in two days let me ask him some of those questions that ingrid has because if we have the ability to ask i believe we should and their silence and their non-response is just as damning 
as what their answer might be. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to bring one of my favorite people who I normally talk to in the mornings. I'm making him stay up or not go to bed early. Jamar Thomas is going to be coming on and going to give us a preview for tomorrow morning's show here on Sputnik. You're listening to The Backstory. I'm Scotty Nell Hughes, filling in for my good friend, Lee Stranahan, wishing him well wishes, a good recovery. In fact, I'm hoping we'll be able to hear from him later on this week, possibly. Make sure that you're following him on Twitter. You can also give your well wishes because I do believe that health actually comes as much mental as it comes physical. You are listening to The Backstory. Well, every morning when I get up, I turn on my friends, and I call them my friends now. Farron Balanced, Farron Franzak, and Jamal Thomas, a.k.a. That's what's so interesting, and I'm going to bring them on right now. The Prague Soapbox, Progressive Soapbox. That's what I've always known you as, and now I actually get to know your first name, which is always fun for me. Thanks for joining me on today. I know you're either not going to bed as early as you like to, but I think it's important that it's interesting that you look at the stories you cover first thing in the morning and have how they develop through the rest of the day. And this morning, I am sure you were talking about these peace talks that were going on in Turkey. And is your optimism still there that we might actually see something uh, come out of it that's fruitful uh, more than just, you know, a ceasefire that actually might be something longer lasting? Jamarly Thomas, thanks for joining me. No, absolutely. Thank you for um, bringing me on. And and look, feel the same way. Liz, like my friend, Scotty, I think I even hit you. I was like, hey, you've been covering the show. Good, great job. Um, yeah, so I am going, I think I may even surprise some people when I say this. Oftentimes I can be a bit cynical. But in this very specific instance, I am going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. But the reason is, you know, straightforward. Ultimately, Russia has basically accomplished most of their objectives. And so at that point, he's like, all right. Now we can have a conversation about peace. It's like we've liberated Donetsk, we've liberated Luhansk republics, we've liberated um, Maripol, and we've created a land bridge to the Crimea, and we have destroyed the military in a way that basically neuters it going forward for the foreseeable future. Now let's talk. It's that. And so when the United States is out here, and they're giving their press conferences, and they're like, oh, Russia is changing, moving the goalposts. If you listen to Putin's speech in recording, he basically said exactly what he is saying now and exactly what the Russian military was saying recently. We've accomplished most of our objectives. We are okay with peace talks now. We weren't trying to take cities. Why did we need to take cities? The goal wasn't destroy or kill people or destroy property. The goal was to smash the military. No more, no less. Now, we reserve the right to do that if we need to. Whatever you want to think of it, and I'm not necessarily making a moral judgment one or way or the other. It's kind of analysis in regards to what is taking place and why. But all things being equal, yeah, Russia at this point is more open to those conversations of peace talks um, because basically they've gotten what they wanted. Basically, it's been militarily decided in such a way that the ceasefire talks can basically, let's say, move to a step where it wasn't until it got to this point. At least that's my assessment of it. I could be wrong. Often I'm right, but I could be wrong. But I like your assessment. I like the optimism. I, I do. Well, I like the optimism of it. But here's the thing. 
four weeks before, when we were looking at it, we could easily define what those objectives were going to be. Keep Ukraine mm-hmm. neutral, not join NATO, so that there weren't missiles along the border, uh, to protect, to stop the killing, and to protect those in the Donbass region, number two. Yeah. And uh, really, those were really the, the two big ones, weren't they? Now that I'm thinking about it, those are really the two that, that yeah. we could not agree on. Now, exactly. however, over the last three weeks, and those are the same ones today. Those have been steadfast. But now the last two weeks, we've learned of these things called biolabs are in Ukraine and the U.S. taxpayer funds. We've learned most Americans had no idea about this Azov Battalion and Stephen Bandera and this large regime of Nazis that I think have been very much exposed. I mean, everybody still thinks that, you know, outside of the white supremacists that live in America, that the Nazis died in World War II, and that was the end of it. And yet now we're finding that there are still major cultural acceptances of these Nazi Azov battalions, and those need to be addressed. So is it as simple anymore as just those two things? Maybe from Putin's perspective it is, but from the rest of the world, I'm not going to be happy until I know what is going on in those biolabs and that there's not a single American taxpayer dollar going into them, as well as all the other biolabs now. I can't live through another global pandemic. I cannot let my child's life be disturbed like it has the last years. I don't want my grandchildren's lives. So is it just simple enough to accept those two things and say, okay, we're done. Go back to your lives. That's a Putin choice, right? I mean, that's kind of a military choice. I mean, ultimately, nations kind of make that determination in regards to what they need um, to be whole versus what they need to expend to get it. And from Putin's standpoint, Okay, you guys have been surrounding my country. I'm responding to the fact you're surrounding my country, and I'm going to have all sorts of military expenditures to do so. All right, great. And then you accomplish your objectives and you find biolabs. How much more do you want to expend to get something done with those biolabs? Not just that. If you know that the sanctions can be removed in negotiations and peace talks, meaning the very fact that these guys are going to the negotiating table, well, Europe. Um, the U.S., all of these countries are on some level going to be guarantors of peace. And what that would mean on some level is that sanctions become part of the peace talks. So, I mean, it's like, how much stuff can you put on that table? I put on the biolabs to an end. I mean, Russia's probably, from my understanding, they've already taken the biolabs. So, you know, the U.S.'s big thing was, oh my God, we can't let the Russians take the biolabs. Well, they, they, you know, they, they're there. And so, I, I guess my thing is, from the standpoint, of Russia at Moscow as they're looking at this and they think we've lost this many people, whatever that number is. We've, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. We've lost this many people, whatever that number is. And beyond the number of people that we lost, we've spent this much money. We have to deal with this number of sanctions. And even though this stuff is hurting the West, there's still, I would say, a horizon or time period that you can kind of operate. It's almost like holding a breath in the water. You can operate for a period of time after a while before that stuff starts to actually hit. And so if you are Moscow and you're thinking to yourself, we got this, this is in hand, we got this, we can accomplish that. How far do you want to push it? I think it's that. And I mean, I don't know what that answer is, meaning I don't know how far they go with that. I mean, but for the biolabs thing, look, it's an interesting question, right? I mean, it's still an open question on whether or not um, the biolab thing was legit. I know a lot of people believe it as a flat fact. I'm still an open question on it one way or the other. Um, But I agree with you on this point that at the end of the day, I would like to know versus not. And the fact that Victoria Nuland admits that these things exist, the U.S. admits that they exist, but it's like, oh, no, 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 we're just doing research. 
yeah, dude, I don't know if I can entirely believe that. I don't know if I can entirely believe that. So I agree with you on that part. That, yeah, there, it is disconcerting that the U.S. is doing this kind of biolab stuff at the border um, in a country that is radically russophobic. Um, and, and honestly, that russophobia on some level being used as a weapon for Western interests. And so, yeah, I don't necessarily think it's the safest thing in the world to have biolabs or bioweapons in the hands of, basically, for all intents and purposes, neo-Nazis. And so I agree with you on that point in regards to, you know, that should be clarified. But no, more likely than not, though, from my standpoint, have you accomplished your military objectives here or day? And if you've gotten the majority of it, rest can be handled in peace talks, especially if you've accomplished what you needed to do militarily and what you wanted was militarily decided. Yeah. And I think the bigger question, you're going to see this phrase, well, Putin's pulling back. He did, He underestimated the the strength of the Ukrainians. And then definitely the, those that are there, there's definitely a, a degree of truth to that. But the reality of it is, if Putin accomplishes his, his goals, the same goals he's already has and he leaves, that doesn't make him a victor. It, it makes him actually someone that doesn't want to kill civilians. He doesn't want to destroy uh, buildings. That He's there to accomplish two things. And I think it also shows that Zelensky had the reality set in that while the West might have talked this big game that they were going to give him all this money and they were going to give him all this firepower and all the support, they haven't. And that he was duped. Now, maybe he did it because he was afraid he was going to be taken out, like what happened to his you know, colleague in 2014. Either way, I think that we're getting closer to the end. Real quick, before I let you go, tomorrow morning show, that's whole, not that I don't love your opinion, but I want people to tune in tomorrow. So what are you doing? So we're going to have Mark Sabota. He's going to be talking about those peace talks, for one. And he's going to get into basically the issue of the things that are taking place on the ground. Um, we're also going to bring on, what is the gentleman's name? Um, Garland Nixon. That's the gentleman's name. Um, the original host of Fault Lines, actually, a friend of mine. Love the guy. And for the last hour at 9 o'clock, we're going to have KJ No. And he's going to get into conversations basically on China um, and the weirdness that's going on with these kind of threats that are being put out, like China isn't taking a side. No, China did take a side. They just didn't take your side. And they're being kind of cagey about the whole thing. But yeah, they're still trading with Russia. India's still trading with Russia. Israel hasn't necessarily cut ties. Like half of the world, basically. But China specifically, just because it's weight um, and just gravity in world politics and honestly, kingmaker at this point. So that's that's basically the show for tomorrow. It should be good. That gives you that gives you a full a full morning. Exactly. Your voice and Farron. You know, it's three fourths of the world. I think I saw a great, you know, memes are always fun, but three fourths of the world's, you know, the majority of the world has not sanctioned Russia. Now we here in the United States think it's a big deal because we're here. We're seeing companies and names that we know. We think it's a big I mean, Heineken, was it Heineken today pulled out? Ooh. Uh the rest of the world though. No, their brands aren't. It's just because it's important to us here in America because we recognize it. I look forward to listening to tomorrow morning's show. It's a great way to wake up, which means you need to go to bed. Jamal Thomas, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate this, Scotty. Have fun today. Enjoy. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, it's always fun. Anytime we get to talk. Folks, we are getting down to the last two minutes of today's show. We have discussed a lot, and it's going to continue that conversation tomorrow when, when I'm with you again. Tomorrow, however, I want to look at this idea of the oligarchs and these sanctions and who they're really hurting. I really want to talk about why it seems like the Americans are now going, oh, wait a minute. Hold on. This is going to punish us. Could you not predict this? Was there no strategy involved? Are you now worried about food shortages? 
And then you have ideas that, you know, when they sanction and then Russia replies back, oh, but you, we're going to expect you to pay with rubles. And people go, wait a minute, that's not right. We, we're not going to pay you with rubles. Wait a minute. Is it rules for thee, but they can't make it their own? Sort of a double standard right now in diplomacy that's happening. We're going to look at that. We're going to have my good friend Neb Malik join us and discuss the latest. And hopefully, maybe, we might actually be one step closer to peace in that region. This, I'm Scotty Nell Hughes. I've been filling in for my friend Lee Stranahan, day two. We survived. Rod, major kudos to you. Thank you for all of your help on the show today. And uh, we're going to continue this conversation. And you are listening to The Backstory. 